Hey everyone, good to be with you. Sorry I've been a bit delayed releasing this next episode, but I hope you like this one. The topic gave me the opportunity to reconnect with an old pal that I hadn't chatted with in some time, so I'm grateful for that. We'll get to that in just a minute. Myself and my team here at TerraTrue, we've been prepping for the upcoming Global Privacy Summit here in D.C., I've been asking the cherry blossoms to slow their rolls, but unfortunately, the weather has been real weird, freezing and then thawing to spring temps and then back to freezing. Apparently, those delicate little petals get confused and they're blooming super early. I guess now we're at a stage four of six stages of bloom. That's what the weatherman told me. And then they're panicking when it gets cold and falling to their deaths on the ground below them. The weatherman didn't tell uh, me that. I'm just explaining what happens. So if you're coming to town for the summit, you may not get much of a show, but what you will get is a couple of days of great chats with old and new friends. Territory was speaking and we're exhibiting, so I'd love to get the chance to say hi if you're around. We can talk podcasts. We can talk dating life. What if? You can find us at booth number 211 in the exhibit hall or at our session on building a PBD program that yields you the kind of metrics you need to prove your value to the business. And we know you're valuable. You got to tell them. Also, I met up with some privacy nerds for drinks a couple nights ago, one of them being my bestie, Coben's wife, O'Keegan, who is part of the amazing and very small crew of people that put on that big LGBTQ party every year. He says that this time, FYI, the dress code will be sequins, according to the committee. And actually, he literally just texted on our group chat, quote, I need to get more sequins, end quote. So get sparkly and hope to see you there. All right, on to some news this week. BIPA has been trending on social media platforms recently. There's so much going on there. And what's really got peeps stroking those laptop keys is the decision in a case against White Castle that could have a wild impact on BIPA claims going forward. In Cuthrun versus White Castle, an employee took the burger chain to task for collecting her fingerprint every time she clocked in. And she said she was due damages for every time White Castle collected or disclosed her data. As Wiljen reported, White Castle said that a person, quote, loses control of their biometric data upon the first collection or disclosure, end quote. So they said the claims can only be based on that first alleged violation and not on every subsequent BIPA violation. BIPA, crap. The court sided with Cawthron, four to three, saying her interpretation was correct and that the violations did occur each time the biometric information was disclosed, even if it was repeatedly disclosed to the same party. Obviously, the implication is that if you get sued for BIPA, you're facing a thousand bucks to five thousand bucks per violation. But if each violation means every time the practice repeated itself, then that turns into big money for a company. In the meantime, BIPA is kind of turning into the new CCPA, you know? Here's what I mean. All sorts of BIPA copycats are cropping up in the U.S. states lately. Remember when the CCPA passed and everyone just stood there with their mouths gaping open for a while and then got moving on compliance? After some time and some coping, other states started dropping their own versions of CCPA, as we've seen uh, the states successfully do, Utah, Connecticut, Virginia, Colorado. Similarly, thanks to a push from the ACLU, 17 states have introduced, not passed, but introduced biometric privacy bills so far this year. The ACLU, coming fresh off of its uh, BIPA-related settlement against Clearview AI last year, introduced a draft model bill that looks a lot like BIPA. As CyberScoop reports, 11 of the 17 states with biometric bills on the table adopted the ACLU's model. 
Also, you probably heard about the BetterHelp news, maybe not. On March 2nd, the FTC announced a proposed order to ban BetterHelp, which provides online counseling and therapy services from sharing consumers' health data, including sensitive mental health information. If approved, BetterHelp has to pay $7.8 million to, to, to customers has to pay $7.8 million to customers to settle charges it breached its privacy promises when it shared data it told customers it wouldn't share. It allegedly used that data for targeted advertising. As JD, JD Super reports, this is the first time the commission has ordered funds to be returned to customers whose privacy has been compromised. And this, of course, comes on the heels of the FTC's recent GoodRx case. I wrote about that in a recent blog post. Check it out, uh, terratruehq.com. The newsletter is called the Privacy Beat Newsletter, and it comes out every two weeks. You could subscribe. Anyway, in the GoodRx case, uh, the Justice Department, on behalf of the FTC, fined GoodRx $1.5 million. GoodRx, of course, is a telemedicine platform and allows users to search for better prices on prescription drugs. As The Verge reported, an FTC investigation found that GoodRx had been sharing data with Facebook, Google, Critio, Branch, and Twilio since at least 2017. That case was historical because it was the first time, it is the first time, the FTC has enforced the health breach notification rule, but it's also historical because the FTC, as a result of this case, has straight up banned GoodRx from selling health information forever. Normally, you'd see the health breach notification rule invoked for an actual breach, but this case is about data sharing. And what's nuanced, really, is that the... Um, the FTC said that because GoodRx customers didn't know their data was being shared, that's a breach. In, F in essence, if it's a surprise to customers that you're revealing their data to a third party, then that's a breach. But what's also interesting about the case is that even though GoodRx wasn't selling data to advertisers, they were sharing it with Facebook in order to retarget their own customers. So GoodRx grouped customers based on their health information into custom audiences like Viagra takers, for example, and they'd upload those groups to Facebook and then Facebook would advertise to them based on GoodRx's behalf. So sharing data in this way is a common practice, my lawyer friends tell me, and Facebook wasn't taking GoodRx's data and selling it or retargeting, but the combination of GoodRx's data with Facebook's data exposed GoodRx's customers' health information in a way that was unfair, the FTC alleged. The fact that the FTC considered those custom audience names as health-related personal information is also nuanced because the categories only revealed drugs and conditions people suffer from, but the FTC said inferences could be taken from that. The bottom line in this case, and what has privacy peeps OMGing, is that the FTC, using its unfairness tool, was able to force GoodRx to change its conduct by forbidding it from selling health data, period. And as Justin Brookman pointed out, there could be significant implications for other apps sharing health data without consent, even if they believe they're within their legal bounds. Okay, on to this week's episode. Enough of me talking. Well, actually, you're going to hear more of me talking, but someone special is here to interrupt my constant questions. Biometrics is an area that fascinates me because the data is so dangerous, at least the way it's been used so far is. We know that government agencies from the FBI to the TSA is already using it to identify potential criminals or terrorist threats. And the scariest part about that, aside from the fact that we don't yet have laws on the books federally to deal with that, is that this technology is far from perfect and often misidentifies faces. It's particularly bad at correctly identifying black and brown faces, which leads to unjust criminal arrests and jail time, etc. The bright line in this saga, I suppose, is that Illinois does have a biometric privacy law, and law firm Edelson PC, based in Chicago, has been bringing big plaintiff's cases based on that, and they've been winning. 
You may recall the big Facebook settlement in 2021 for $650 million over Facebook's alleged BIPA violations. That was Edelson. Then there was the Clearview AI settlement in 2022, in which Edelson rep ACLU and got a ban against Clearview AI from making its face print database available to businesses and others. And those are just the highlights. In the meantime, as I mentioned before, BIPA-like laws are being introduced in many states this year, and perhaps we'll see a CCPA-like cascade of copycats. It's anyone's guess. Here to discuss BIPA biometrics and Aaron Brockovich is my friend Jay Edelson, founder of Edelson PC. Now, after we stopped recording, Jay brought to my attention that throughout our chat, I kept saying BIPA, and I was like, no, I didn't. I don't think I did. Uh, I still haven't caught it in the episode, but I know I already did it once during this intro uh, and realized it because now I'm self-conscious. So just so that I don't have you calling it the wrong thing. I mean, you know, it's a matter of opinion, but Edelson tells me I'm supposed to say BIPA. And for some reason, I like to say a beep beep. Anyway, if you like this episode, it would help me out tremendously if you'd share it with your networks on the socials. Uh, help evangelize the good word and also go check out my newsletter, the Privacy Beat newsletter. Hope you enjoy. See you in DC soon. Love you. I spent all of COVID in a studio apartment, so basically in a closet. And then when COVID started to like subside a little bit, I was like, I got to get out of here. So I moved across the street to a nice like one bedroom. So now at least when my dog wants to avoid me, he has another room to go to, which is very nice. The, yeah, I was, I was stuck uh, in, in uh, like a condo during COVID, which was really small. And my uh, son and daughter were living with me and um, it was, it was insane. I was, I had these large mediations going on and I was doing it out of my bedroom and because um, I wanted to give my kids like the better space, but there really wasn't any space. It, it was, it was tough. And then we just decided to, to just buy a house um, in the middle of COVID, which was, was the right call, but pretty crazy because at the time yeah. you didn't even go and see houses. You just had to, you know, roll to, to die, to die, to die, to die. To die. So, I think it's die, yeah. Two die, a pair, a pair of die. That's like a that. pair of dies. Anyway, oh. uh, you know what I was also thinking about the other day. Do you know where like o'clock comes from? Like when someone says like five o'clock, like where is that? Why did we start doing o apostrophe clock? Do you know? That's a great question. What's the answer? I don't know. I haven't Googled it yet because I wanted to ask around and see if people knew except for me. And I don't know. I don't want you to tell me. I don't want you to Google it. I won't. But the fact that you're still Googling things shows how outdated you are. It's all chat <laughs> at this point. I'm scared to use it. I've heard so many horror stories. 60 Minutes did a whole thing on it the other night. Aside from what all the privacy people are saying, like, first of all, it's coming for our jobs. It can write privacy policies. But I'm afraid I'm going to get like, I don't know, accosted by one of these rogue robots. Although Brad Smith at Microsoft says that they've fixed the glitch and now like it's not going to be a problem. So they've overfixed it. Um, Have they? Yes. It's um, the, it, it used to be kind of really nice and efficient. And you'd ask it a question and give you the answer. Now it does a lot of lecturing about, um, about 
sensitivity whenever you ask any sort of question. It's just like a lot of weird noise. Um, oh. So, but no, you, you've got to, you got to get, get used to generative AI. It's here to stay. Well, I know, but you're also, I mean, as we'll get into, you're always way ahead of me when it comes to the latest tech trends. Like you have a particular finger, which will also come in later on the pulse of, um, of all. (laughs) Oh, but before we get into all that, um, you sent me a clip the other day, uh, from CNBC, very exciting program that I think is about to debut or has debuted. This is horrible. So it debuted last night and you obviously didn't watch it. I didn't know. I don't even have live TV. Like I just watched like streaming apps, but I watched the full, I watched the full program. Like it was like, you know, a few minutes long or whatever and learned that you're involved with this whole sort of a dream world for you. Uh, I think because you love reality TV, you love housewives and you love the law and you got to kind of take part in this program that discusses all of them. No, this has been a disaster in terms of all of that because, so this is the Tom Girardi, Erica Jane thing where um, we were co-counsel with him in the Lion Air case and then found out he had stolen all this money and then brought it to the court's attention and he's now been indicted and his son-in-law's been indicted and there's going to be more indictments. Um, and so this has been really just a huge passion project for us to try to clean up plaintiff's law. The reason it's a personal disaster for me, beyond that he stole from widows and orphans, on a more personal note, is it's ruined reality TV for me. I can't watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills anymore because uh, now that like I've actually seen who Erica Jane is, um, it's no longer kind of cute and funny. Um, every time she eats caviar pie, I'm like, that's that's the client's money that you're using. So it's been uh it's been hard. It's been been difficult. I I I'm really almost over all reality TV. So oh not, wow. Yeah, I just I just um I just sit at home doing yoga. <laughs> Uh, for folks who don't know, not that we need to get into the whole history because it's not the focus of this podcast, but if you don't watch reality TV and have never heard these two names, will you just tell them what this Tom Girardi and Erica J case is? Tom Girardi, um, was the, uh, Aaron Brockfish lawyer. He's, he was a really powerful and influential and successful plans attorney, um, and married to a real housewife of Beverly Hills, Erica Jane, and, um, it turned out that he was running a Ponzi scheme for as long as four decades where he stole hundreds of millions of dollars from clients. The California bar knew about it and covered it up uh, according to the LA times because he was uh, influencing them with things like free trips and perhaps money and other things. And uh, it's it's a real, real, uh, real just horrible situation. So, uh, so that's what our firm's been working on. So why did you, um, cause I know usually you pick projects that are really like important or the, I know it's not just you, but like the team seems to me to pick 
cases to take that are really important on sort of like a macro level or who really, that really addresses um, people who have been horribly victimized, especially, you know, women, children. I know you've done some cases against hospitals that have mistreated patient information. Like, what about this case was like, we need to go after this guy? This is going to dovetail into into BIPA, which I know is what you really want to talk about. Nice. Um, Segway. The, um, you know, we we think that in order for for plaintiff's work, which I really believe in, uh, to work, the lawyers have to be acting properly. And so when you have someone who was, you know, like an icon in our industry who is doing these horrible things and, you know, it involved potentially sitting judges, retired judges, politicians, just this web of corruption, um, we're very motivated to, to fix that um, because anytime there's kind of bad actors that are plaintiff's lawyers, it, it reflects poorly on us and it allows um, the bad guys to change the law, to gut the laws, uh, which is something that's happening in, in BIPA right now. Thank you for setting me up so nicely on that little ledge there. Uh, the, the reason I wanted to chat today is because I was just writing the other day about some BIPA stuff. And I thought, oh my gosh, I should check in with Jay because he is the king of all this stuff and I want to hear what's going on in his land. So the latest on this that I was reading about was this White Castle case. And so I sort of saw this uh, trending on on social media um, where, you know, it was this case Cothron versus White Castle or Cothron. Do I say it? Cothron? Cothron? You don't care. Um filed a suit, took the burger chain to task for collecting her fingerprint every time she clocked in um, and said that she was due for damages every time that White Castle collected or disclosed that fingerprint. Um, and then the big deal was that the court said that um, side with the plaintiff and said her interpretation was correct and the violations occurred every time the biometric uh, information was um, disclosed, even if it was repeated disclosures to the same party. And so the implications being that, like, now you rack up all of these huge costs. Um, can you talk about just this case, like, in general and your thoughts and feelings? Yeah. So that was, it was not our case. Um, the, the, when you, when you read the statute, it says every violation you get a thousand dollars, or if it's reckless or willful, you get five thousand dollars. Um, and that's really strong, as you know, for a privacy statute. And um, especially since privacy statutes involve a lot of people, the damages are significant uh, by, by themselves. Um, the, the argument in White Castle, which had to do more with, with statute limitations, when, when do actions start to accrue, but but then it got into, you know, kind of the, what you're talking about, which is, can you stack violations, um, is something which, which I think is really wrongheaded. Uh, and this is from a plaintiff's lawyer. So, um, if you, you know, the, these are, if someone's going and giving a, a thumbprint for a time clock and they give their thumb, uh, their thumbprint and then it's collected and they didn't get, uh, there's no permission given. That's bad. But if it happens a second time, I don't see how that's more bad. The company already has the thumbprint 
and then they do it a third time. Well, it's still the same thing. It's, it's all to me. It's all one violation. Um, and the problem is that someone who's clocking in and out every day, under the Supreme Court's logic, that's two violations a day, so ten a week. Um, so what? What is that? You know, five hundred over the course of of a year. If you if it's just a negligent um, violation, that's a thousand dollars times five hundred. That's five hundred thousand dollars for one person. But then they did it to their whole workforce, which means that it's like bankrupts every single company. Um, and I don't think that's what the legislator meant. Um, and um, and I think kind of overreaching by the plans bar is really bad. One is it's not fair to businesses. Um, and second, it allows uh, the Chamber of Commerce to come in and say, we got to gut the act, which is also what the Supreme Court said. They, they said, look, this is how statutes written, and if there need to be changes, the legislator should do it. So now we're back in yet another huge fight in Springfield, which is, that's what we've been doing since the beginning of a BIPA litigation. We fight in the courts, and then we fight in Springfield. So this is more of a comment than a question that I'd like for you to respond to, but I do think, you know, you noted, like, I'm saying this as a plaintiff's attorney, but, like, I do think that, you know, I've spoken with you a lot about plaintiffs getting, like, meaningful settlements and like something meaningful coming out of the action of taking a company to task for what they did allegedly wrong. Um, so I think it's really interesting to hear you saying that like this swings too far the other way. So this is going to be counterintuitive, but when the damages are, are that high, you, they actually become irrelevant for purposes of talking settlement. Um, so if you say our case the, if we win, we're going to get $200 million. That's actually a stronger position than if we win, we're going to get $60 bazillion. Because $60 bazillion doesn't mean anything. Nobody takes it seriously. And then you end up just picking a number. So if you actually look at, at historically these large statutory damage cases, at the very beginning, um, they settled for like $10 million. It was just, we're going to pick a number, even though theoretically there's trillions of dollars at issue. Um, in our Facebook BIFA case, that was a th- big thing we were trying to push against, which is, no, we can tie this to real damages and you're going to have to pay a real amount. And um, got a really good result, $650 million for an Illinois-only class. People got, uh, I think then, about $430. Um, on a $1,000 claim, which is really good in a class action. Um, if the case were worth a, a, a trillion bazillion dollars, it would have been harder for us to argue for the $430. Um, so, um, so to me, it's, you know, you, you want to take reasonable positions that are grounded in law and you don't want a statute which leads to absurd results because, because that's just not helpful. I'm going to do the thing that I do sometimes with you, which is to ask you what's probably to the legal profession a very dumb question, but a real question that I have, which is like, I know that it's the court's job to assess like what the law says and how it applies in each case. There's never a time when a court would say like, 
yeah, it says this, but we don't think it was the spirit of the law. So we're actually going to rule this way. Like you have to rule just based on the actual text of a law, right? So that's, I'm, there are huge debates about that, mostly at the Supreme Court level, which is at what point do you just focus on the text? Um, and at what point do you start taking other considerations? Um, the, the, so there, there's kind of a couple of points I make. First of all, judges are human and they're aware of what, what the results are going to be. And so that influences them. I've always talked about this when you're bringing new types of cases, um, that you want to have an emotional connection to the case. That if the judge doesn't understand why it matters, uh, she's going to find a way to rule against it. If it's, if it's, if it's a new case. Um, so that always is in the background, but even in the foreground, um, there's a lot of laws saying if it's, if a statute is going to lead to absurd results, then you don't have to read, to read it, um, kind of in the most literal way. Here, I, I, I just don't even think that's how, how you ought to be reading the statute at all. But the Supreme Court did, did hedge. They also, and this also shows why it's, um, um, you know, these types of like huge overreaching cases are just bad in general. The court said, you know, that the, that there's some discretion in awarding the statutory damages. Um, and so the statute's really clear. If there's a violation, you get a thousand dollars. It's not up to a thousand dollars. It's a thousand and then it can be five thousand it's reckless or willful. Supreme Court kind of slipped in. Well, maybe the, the trial judge can reduce that. To any amount it wants. Um, and I think uh, that was just because they realized we, we can't have these gazillion dollar suits against, against, you know, every employer in Illinois. Um, and that, that's, that's not what the statute says. And that's not, that's not good. That's going to lead just to more really crappy settlements, which, which is, which is kind of plagued privacy settlements for years. What could happen here is that we say, okay, like the law is being used in the, in ways it wasn't intended to be used when it was passed. <clears throat> so we need to repeal it or revise it or whatever's going to happen. In the meantime, what do you see happening with folks who maybe read this like lawsuit? Are you predicting a bunch of copycat, copycat cases where they say, okay, there was a technical violation that repeatedly happened. We can like absolutely nail this company. Like, is that the future in the near term? So, I mean, that you're, you're just, you're just, you know, spouting chamber of commerce stuff, you know, all this stuff, technical violations. So the, the statutes first been around for a long time. It's easy to comply with. And, um, you know, we've brought the first suit under BIPA, I think in 2015. And it, New York Times had a profile of our firm where it talked about BIPA and that we were bringing all these BIPA cases. So everybody was on notice. And then the Facebook case got a lot of press. And it's amazing to me that all these law firms that ended up creating their own biometric privacy groups aren't just making sure that their clients are complying. I'm not, I'm not actually seeing technical violations um, where someone gave consent, but, you know, had a couple words wrong or something. Um, these, these are wholesale violations of the statute. Um, 
in terms of copycat suits, there's already been there's already been so many. Um, there's been way too much BIPA litigation, and um, and you know I think I do think that lawyers have brought some cases they shouldn't have brought, and have stretched in ways they shouldn't have. So the idea that there's going to be even more now. I don't see that. I think, I think really the big thing to look at is what's happening, uh, in the legislature. And I, I do have to say we've been saying for years, um, to the Chamber of Commerce and to business interests that, that we want to, uh, work with them to try to have, um, to try to fix, you know, some potential problems with them, including how to figure out damages. They've always refused because they like to have BIPA as a boogeyman. So they can raise money and do all that stuff. Defense lawyers love BIPA because, um, they get to build a ton on the cases. Um, it's made so many careers out of, out of defense lawyers. Um, and it's their whole identity. You know, if BIPA actually went away, what would they do? All they are is biometric privacy lawyers, which just means defending BIPA lawsuits. So no offense to the biometric privacy group lawyers listening to this now, of course. It's fine. I'm not saying they're doing anything uh, inappropriate. I'm just saying that, you know, it's always funny to me that, that, um, that the defense lawyers who complain so much about class actions are the ones who have the most to lose if class actions go away. When, when Concepcion, uh, came down to the Supreme Court, which said arbitration agreements could kill class actions. Um, I was actually giving, I was doing a, a class action conference, um, like hosting it with, with a defense lawyer like a week after. And all these defense lawyers came up to me and said, all right, Jay, how are we going to get around this? What are we going to do? Because we got to stay in business. And uh, it was pretty funny. They, they were more nervous than the plaintiff's lawyers were. Um, because for us, it's actually a little bit easier to pivot. Um, so anyway, that, that's, that's just kind of is the world that, that, that we exist in. But I've, I've said it before and I'm saying it to you now. Um, you know, we, we are supportive of amending BIPA, um, certainly dealing with this stacking issue when it comes to damages and dealing with, um, especially with, um, with the overgrowth of employment suits, um, which I don't love, you know, if someone, if someone's putting their, their thumb on a scanner in some level, they probably know that their, that their thumbprint is being collected. Um, so those feel a little bit more like gotcha suits. Um, but you know, I'm still waiting for the call from the chamber and, probably not going to get one then we'll just kind of go for it on our own in with bipa i should know this but i don't remember you don't have to prove harm like it just has to be a violation right like you don't have to say i have suffered harms because i had to put my fingerprint to clock in a billion times you've really turned you're you're in the dark side now that 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 the what uh, the harm the i would say it differently so yes what you're saying is correct but but i'd say it differently which is the harm is that someone is collecting your biometric information without your consent that's the harm but no you don't have to show uh what what people call you know wallet injury um 
that you lost money or for personal injury. Um, it, it is the uh, the collection of, of the data without consent is the harm. Well, to be clear, I agree that the collection of the data without consent is a harm. I'm a big fan of, you know, the little guy in general. I phrased it improperly. Um, but I was just trying to think about the argument that the woman who brought the case would have had to make if she was like talking about, you know, a harm beyond at the point of collection and that that would be hard just because we haven't established what the harm threshold is. Well, but so if, if, you know, evil people like you, um, who, who are clearly just shills for big business, I want to be clear, um, you're laughing now because it's obviously. I'm laughing. This is a podcast. I don't want anyone to think I'm. I mean, serious. But you no, know, he he's saying it because he knows in his heart it's not true. Of course, I know it's. I would not. I would not say that if I, if I it's true. But um, the um, no. But in all seriousness, if 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 the defense bar kind of grappled with the real issues a little bit better and said, you know, these are considered harm. The 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 actual collection itself they would have a better argument in explaining to, for example, the Illinois Supreme Court, why having multiple collections of the same data doesn't change anything at all. Um, but uh, but instead, they, they've kind of adopted this view, it's a no-harm statute, which I think led them to this kind of bad place. They, sh- they should have just stuck with, yes, the, the harm is the collection. And thus, if it's collected a second time, there's no difference. What about this B-Way case? Can you talk about it? Which case, sis? Um, it's a settlement scheduled for March 30th, which I thought your firm was handling, um, where this company under the settlement has agreed to destroy all biometric data, data of former employees and implement an improved consent disclosure and retention program. Is that not not Edison? We so the firm's bigger now, so I don't know every single case off the top of uh, of my head. Um, every time I hear Edison's involved, I just picture you up in a courtroom waving fists. I forget that like there's been uh, significant growth at the firm. It's not just growth; it's also a lot of pushing the old guy out. So they have me focus a ton on uh, volleyball. Um, they say that's my best use for the firm, at the firm. Um, um, they, they told me to just you know take a step back from from what they say is you know the the hard thinking matters, uh, <laughs> which is fine. Okay, that's that's how it works. Um, but well, was there something special about that settlement? Because there's no, I'm, a bit of settlement in- week. Uh, no, I'm interested in, I like the settlements where uh, they are required to destroy the data that they collected. Like, I think that's a fascinating thing and such a blow to a company to have like done all of the, I mean, hard work, I guess you could say, uh, though it's likely automated, but um, of like collecting all this data and trying to reap all these benefits from it. And then we've seen, for example, like the not just you know this settlement, but the FCC recently coming after people for various violations, and then requiring this you know algorithmic disgorgement, uh, as they say, which I think is just such a overly complicated phrase. Um, 
but yeah, I just think it's really, it's, I don't know. I just thought the case was cool and I wanted to talk to you about it, but you know what? We, so yeah, we've had a couple, a number of uh, big settlements, which have changed biometric collection beyond just Illinois, which has been interesting. So our settlement with Facebook um, made them change their practices in Illinois, but then it led to them just abandoning biometric collection throughout the country. Um, oh, I didn't know that. And that, that can happen a lot because it's very hard for a company to um, to treat one state properly when it comes to privacy and then screw over everybody else. Um, and then we did a pro bono case with ACLU against Clearview. Um, Clearview uh, is a really scary company that was um, collecting, uh, was amassing this huge database um, so it could identify people uh, through video cameras. And it was selling it to please some private businesses. And um, we ended up getting... Uh, getting a nationwide injunction uh, prohibiting a lot of that uh, stuff. Um, unfortunately, in, in BIPA, there's an exception um, if you're selling to police, uh, to the police, to the government. So, um, so it was focused on uh, private businesses, but we were really happy with that. And that was, again, nationwide, even though it's an Illinois-only statute. Yeah, and that was like the first, I mean, I, that was such a huge case like, for people in our certainly people in the privacy profession who are following. Um, I mean, the Facebook one also enormous, but I feel like this one was like, there was so much talk about Clearview AI and what was actually happening there and the dangers of that data being sold or shared. Um, which brings me actually to something I wanted to ask you about. You know, I like to get a little philosophical with you sometimes. And um, there are people like in in the privacy space who are like, biometrics just shouldn't be a thing. Like we should not have, <clears throat> the technology should be banned outright. Do you think that companies can handle the responsibility of collecting and managing this data within certain guardrails or frameworks? Say the law catches up to this tech at one point in time, which we know is impossible in the end. But do you think the biometric data collection is inherently sort of evil and problematic or is it the stewards of the data that can revise their behaviors uh i do not think that there's anything inherently immoral with biometric collection um this i actually think that uh, ironically there may be a growing need for the use of biometrics as we start getting more and more into this AI world that we're catapulting ourselves into, it's going to be really, really hard to tell the difference between um, AI posing as people and people being people. And um, one solution uh, for that may actually be uh, biometrics, that you'll be able to identify someone through biometrics. So, so I don't think, I don't think it's a good idea just to kind of label technology as inherently bad. I guess there's some, some kinds that, that could be. Um, but you know, there's, there's generally good use cases and bad use cases, uh, for it. Um, and that's why I think it's important to have kind of clear rules 
early on. Uh, but no, I, I, I think that, that, uh, I think that the incoming world's gonna, gonna, again, ironically need, uh, some, some more biometric collection, which is crazy that I'm saying that because I, I really, you know, was very, very, uh, scared of it for a lot of years, but the AI is the implications of what's going on in the AI world is just insane. So do you think that we, the states are, there are states that are starting to introduce sort of some BIPA cap, uh, cop cat type laws, um, which I know, you know, you had mentioned there are a couple of places in BIPA itself that you may amend if, if it were up to you. But, um, does this excite you kind of seeing states start to introduce it? Or do you think that we should do it within either at the federal level and or like swept into whatever type of privacy law we eventually pass in like 2040 or whenever we actually get it done. So, and we've been talking about this now for years. I, I think federal privacy legislation, first, luckily it's not going to happen. And second, the reason it's lucky is because um, generally the bills that are introduced just save companies who don't care about privacy. So they've got really nice names and then they preempt um, the state law generally, uh, and they don't allow people to sue, uh, which means they just end up, up, you know, being, you know, a get-out-of-jail-free card for uh, for defendants. The example I always use is the Can Spam Act, where um, this is probably, you know, before you were born, but um, the, so there were, computers and people would send emails to people to contact stop <laughs> did you read this in like your history classes and um and states had had these anti-spam uh laws if you spam people um then you're liable for like ten dollars uh really good statutes and gave a huge disincentive to spammy people. And then the federal government got involved and they passed what's called the Can Spam Act. Really great name. And it said all those state laws are preempted and nobody can sue under the federal law. Like it's very hard to. Um, and because of that, we just get tons and tons of spam. I've gotten it for, for decades. So, um, so no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not bullish on a federal privacy statute in terms of state ones. It all depends how they're written. Um, I think that you need to have uh, statutes that are private rights of action so that individuals can sue. But I think that you've got to be careful about um, about the aggregate uh, damages that um, that have to be paid under these statutes so that you don't end up with kind of the world where in BIPA where companies are facing, you know, burn because because uh, they didn't get someone to sign a document. You know, I, I think that, I think it's the tails, the, the scales kind of tip the other way right now. Do you think it's possible that we pass laws either statewide or federally that don't have exemptions for law enforcement? Because law enforcement loves access to data and they fight really hard to maintain that access. So, are we going to be able to overcome that and say, hey, like you can't be sharing and disseminating, you know, to federal agencies, to the DMV or whatever for the purposes of crime fighting, like my only, my one and only face scan? 
I, I would hope so. Um, it's, I mean, it's really, the stakes get really high when you're talking about um, giving it to, uh, giving this technology to the police or um, other governmental agencies, especially since uh, the, the software does a really, really bad job of identifying minorities. Um, and so because of that, you can have a lot of instances where, you know, the, the machine can ding and say, yes, this is someone who, um, who has a criminal history. And it's just not, it's just the, the software is bad. Uh, you see that in the retail space too, where, you know, a lot of companies have hidden cameras and, um, they're checking databases to, to try to, you know, alert to potential shoplifters. And what it ends up doing is it just alerts to this person is a minority. Um, and so, so yeah, the dangers are, I think, much more extreme um, as you start getting, you know, police with guns involved and all of that. Um, in terms of whether there's a political will for that, uh, I don't know. It's the, the country's so fractured right now. You know, in certain certain areas, I think 100% others, you know, anything that, that is pro-police, that, that's where they, that's how they're going to vote. Okay, lastly, I was watching your CNBC special and you said, you know, in, in terms of bringing down uh, or at least holding Tom Girardi to task for, for his missteps. Uh, you know, that he was really highly lauded by the profession and, um, you know, as the Aaron Brockovich lawyer, um, you know, that Aaron Brockovich sort of inspired many of you to go to law school. And then I thought, did you go to law school because you love the movie so much? So first, you're such a liar. You did not watch the, the CNBC thing. I watched the clip you sent me. It was CNBC talking to me. The CNBC logo was right there. You watched a little, a little promo, but there was a. Well, it, was like a five, it was like four or five minutes. I felt like I got a lot out of it. Yes, but you don't understand. They in in the actual thing, they have a courtroom sketch, so they've got a cartoon version of me for uh, for a court appearance that happened telephonically. But in there, I'm there with you. It's the funniest thing because I'm there in like a very formal suit and I've got a briefcase. And you know me, like I wouldn't ever have a briefcase if my life depended on it. Um, it it's it's very funny. I think that's reason to watch watch the whole thing. But um, did I go to? Uh, I mean, the I, I was probably more of a legally blonde you know, person than Aaron Brockovich. But no, I, I did. I got really pumped up by by um, those types of um, um, kind of real stories, Aaron Brockovich. And then there there's um, a book that became a movie called The Civil Action, um, which was also about uh, plaintiff's lawyers fighting, fighting uh, for clients where there's water uh, pollution and people getting cancer. That, the... Um, the lawyer just totally screwed up the case. Uh, that was actually energizing to me. I read that and I was like, oh my goodness, I see why they're screwing up this case. Um, I think I can maybe do a little bit of a better job. Um, and um, But that guy like became a hero, even though he lost. And 
lost because of just bad strategy. Anyway, yes, those, those things have, have a big influence. And so when they finally do the movie on, you know, whether they're doing the uh, Clearview case or the Facebook case or a case that has not yet happened, but, you know, is forthcoming uh, for your for your team and you, uh, who will play you in the movie, do you think? What What would your guess be? Um, who do you look like? Who do you get comparisons to? I, I don't get a ton of comparisons. Uh, You're so unique to you. Uh, I I would want. It's tough. You need to have this weird mix of like super dorky, but then tortured, but like, but like hidden kind of well, but not that well. Uh, I I think I would go with like Mark Ruffalo, except for he's he's not dorky enough, but he he's tortured, or he played yeah. well. Or like, what about like a Joaquin Phoenix? Oh like my he's God. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean that that'd be terrific because you know, like basically the Joker is, you know, I I, I can't say that the there are too many similarities because it's such a horrible thing that happens. But um, but I I do the same dance, hundred yeah. percent, same exact dance.